Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is a crowd podcast. The flashbulb pops, a burst of light on a dark runway. It captures a moment, a group of friends grinning, each giddy with excitement. It's spring 1965 and they're heading for Paris. An Air France jet looms behind them. A security guard looks on in amusement. At the center of the scene is a man. He wears a Macintosh and dark glasses and a wig a shock of silver grey on top of his head. He's Andy Warhol, the king of New York's counterculture, the man who's canned consumerism and sold it as high art. But for once, your eye isn't drawn to Andy. It's pulled left to the young woman by his side. She's just turned 22, dark lashes and arching brows on a face as fine as porcelain. Her hair is chopped in a pixie bob. Her smile dazzles, straight teeth reflecting the photographer's flash. She's wearing a black t-shirt and dark tights, a svelte shadow cloaked in a gleaming snow-white mink coat. For their trip across the Atlantic, she's carrying just a small suitcase, and in it is one item, another identical mink coat. She's Edie Sedgwick. She's appeared in one film, a low-budget art house flick, a non-speaking part. She's barely in the frame. She doesn't even stand up, little more than an extra. But she's a star. Not for anything she's done, not for anything she's achieved, but for what she is and how she lives. That's what Andy says. In Paris, after the flight, the friends arrive at a private club. Champagne flows, carved cherubs look down from the ceiling, and Edie floats through the crowd. She's got a tumbler of scotch in one hand, a cigarette dangling from the fingers of the other. And suddenly, she's on the stage, among the club's chorus line. She hands out white rabbits, 15 in all, their noses twitching in the fog, their ears pinned back against the shrieks of delight. Edie's in Wonderland. She's tumbled from obscurity to celebrity in a matter of weeks, all on the back of a look, an attitude, a lifestyle. It's one Andy sells, and people buy into. But they can step away. They don't have to live it. Edie does. In Paris, it feels like the whirlwind will never stop. Together, Andy and Edie could conquer continents. But they've only known each other for a few weeks. A month before, they meet for the first time, sat across a marble table lit by candles. 
Out of the penthouse windows behind them, Manhattan skyscrapers glint, towering over Central Park's darkness. Their host is an ad executive, and they're at playwright Tennessee Williams' 54th birthday. The table is laden with food prepared by a Japanese butler, and amid the chatter and laughter, Andy and Edie's eyes lock. It feels like a chance encounter. But it's not. It's a setup. You see, it's not a romantic date. Andy's gay and out. While others in the New York art scene keep their private lives out of sight and off the canvas, his art glories in male beauty. His entourage of assistants are boyishly handsome. He sleeps with several of them. He doesn't lust after women, but he adores their aesthetic. He pours over the million minute differences that morph one form of beauty to another. He makes prints of Marilyn Monroe, of Elizabeth Taylor, and he finds his own private muses. Girls plucked from parties and high society and placed on a pedestal. His most recent is Baby Jane, that's what Andy calls her. She's all blonde hair, big eyes and pouting lips, a bombshell beauty. The all-American girl made over by the 60s sexual revolution. Andy makes a film with her, three minutes, one shot. Baby Jane slowly brushing her teeth straight down the barrel. But Andy's restless. He wants a new project, a different look, a more subtle subject for the camera's gaze. So Edie, a wannabe model, gets invited to the penthouse party by one of Andy's friends. He thinks he'll like her. And now, as Edie sits down at the table, he sees the beauty that his friends told him about. And something more. Edie's more than a look. There's a depth, a backstory. It's different to Andy's, and that makes it all the more alluring. Because Edie's part of an American dynasty. The Sedgwicks are a founding family, their name woven through the country's short, white history. The Sedgwicks were settlers and senators, soldiers and slave owners, shipping magnates and railroad owners. Sedgwick is an old name, and with the long past comes old money. Lots of it. Andy, on the other hand, he's different. Grew up in a Slovakian community in Pittsburgh, the son of a coal miner and a cleaner, an immigrant outsider. He even stood out in his own community, a weak, sickly, arty kid. So the deep roots and the deep pockets of America's elite fascinate him. That night, at that party, Andy invites her to the factory. The factory is where Andy makes art, myth and money. It's a loft space, five floors above New York streets. Its high walls are covered in tin foil and shards of mirror. There's a motorbike, a red couch, but not much more. It's a space waiting to be filled. By day, Andy's assistants churn out prints of stars, soda and soup as he looks on. But as the sun drops, so do the drugs. It changes. 
New York's bohemians and libertines, the freaks and the chic, flock to the factory floor. They're revved up on speed and ready to party, and the creativity gives way to chaos. One night, a girl, sat in a bath in the middle of the party, passes out. She's had a hit of amphetamines in one arm, one of heroin in the other. She slips beneath the water and stops moving. Her friends haul her out. They think she's dead, but high themselves, the gravity of the situation doesn't bring them back to Earth. Someone suggests sending her body down the mail chute to the building's post room. They start covering her naked body with farewell notes and stamps, only stopping when she splutters back to life. This is how one of Andy's gang remembers it. In those days, the factory was like a medieval core of lunatics. You pledged allegiance to the king, King Warhol. He accepted the responsibility. He accepted the insanity. And for Andy, it's all part of the brand. The debauchery gives his art edge. It boosts its value. New York's executives outbid each other for a slice of an underground scene they'll never be part of. But Edie, with her ethereal beauty, can. On her first visit to the factory, Andy ushers her straight into shop for a film he's making. She smokes and smoulders in the background of a nightclub scene, her arms twisting and flexing, the shoulders rolling, in time to a Motown hit. She looks free, confident, composed. How we all think we look when we dance, and how only a few actually do. There's something slightly unsettling about it, the mix of innocence and seductiveness, the contrast between her placid expression and whirling body. Andy watches it all. This is what he says. I could see that she had more problems than anybody I'd ever met. She was so beautiful, but so sick. I was really intrigued. We'll get back to that after this short break. Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. The sickness sets in years before. It begins far from New York's bustle, on the opposite side of the country. It starts in a large farmhouse among California's rolling hills, fertile fields and wide, clear skies, where the fruit trees bloom and the cicadas sing. There's a fireplace at the centre of a grand stone hearth, pictures of cowboys on the wall. A thick-set man in an easy chair, his wife opposite him, five of his children around his feet, a book in hand. The kids stare up at their father, 
adoring, attentive. But this isn't a snapshot into their everyday life. It's a posed picture, shot by a magazine photographer, and out of frame is a journalist, notepad at the ready. The article is to be called The Working American, a portrait of a great patriarch. That's what the journalist plans to write about. And that's what the man in the chair wants it to be. He's Francis, and Edie, just six, is one of the kids at his feet. Francis is born into privilege, his status cemented by a series of institutions. He goes to an elite private school, then Harvard, then Cambridge. He's clever, charming, handsome, a keen sportsman, strolling around country club tennis courts, tapping his muscled calves with the edge of the racket. He rows, he runs, he boxes. As the twenties roar, his stock climbs and climbs. He leaves university and becomes a banker, but then comes the crash. He suffers a nervous breakdown. His quick temper spills over into shakes and shouts, bouts of depression and darkness. He has to leave his job, but he also has to leave the entire industry. Mental illness is moral weakness. He can't be a mover and shaker if you fall apart of the first bit of turbulence. That's what his bosses think. That's what the time dictates. His doctors have an answer. They tell Francis to develop his artistic side. So, wearing a bowler hat, suit and umbrella to blend in and save face, he commutes into New York to study and sculpt. Then, one quiet Sunday morning, Japanese planes swoop down on Pearl Harbor and drag the United States into the Second World War. And Francis sees a second chance. A chance to live gloriously again, to match up to the expectations bred into him. Francis's brother's already in the Air Force. His old drinking buddies enlist. America's brightest and best are looking for adventure, for stories to rival their fathers. But once again, Francis is frustrated. His childhood asthma, his manic depressive moments, count against him, and he fails the medical. So he decides, if he can't conquer the world, he'll dominate the one he can control. He buys a ranch out west, 3,000 acres of sunlit farmland. From horizon to horizon, he's the master of all he can see. And that includes his family. He doesn't let Edie or her siblings leave the ranch. A small shack is their home school. Francis insists on the same subjects he learned, history, classics, manners, old lessons, old values, and strict discipline. He controls their every moment. So his mood, aloof one moment, angry the next, dictates their days. When they have guests, there's something else too. A strutting sexuality. He plays the cowboy, all plaid shirt and tight jeans. He strips down to his swimming shorts and propositions just about everyone. His friends' wives, his wife's friends, his friends' daughters, his daughter's friends and he's often successful. Edie's mother, worn down, turns a blind eye. Everyone has their way of coping, of taking some sort of control, in some sick way. Maybe this is his. 
With Edie, it comes from food. She gorges and then purges. Oversized meals and multiple trips to the bathroom. The curves that other girls get never arrive. She stays straight, startlingly thin. Cheekbones, collarbones and ribs rise to the skin's surface as delicate as a bird's. Her weight drops. She's less than six and a half stone. For Francis, the answer, as always, lies in institutions. No need for introspection, not when there's somewhere with thick walls, a long history and a big reputation to fix your problems. So Edie, age 19, gets away from the ranch, but only for another gilded cage. It's a beautiful French-style chateau in upstate New York, with a five-storey block of bedrooms attached to it. All around a manicured lawn shaded by great old trees. Inside is white. White walls, white uniforms, white sheets on the beds, white cloths on the tables, and locks. Locks and eyes and rules and routine. The most severe cases, like Edie, are always watched. They're never allowed a choice. Every trip to the bathroom is accompanied. Every mealtime is monitored. Friday night, the patients line up, their hairs washed, their legs shaved. And some afternoons, the girls will lie down as electrodes pass vaults through their brains, trying to reset them, trying to reverse the deep damage. Until eventually, they rise, literally. The patients move up floor by floor, as the doctors and nurses decide they're moving out of danger and closer back to society. After months of treatment, Edie reaches the fifth floor, the final stage. She's healthy. Her face is fuller. She looks less fragile, at least from the outside. And she's impatient. Impatient for a life of her own, unrestrained by other people's rules. New York is calling, and Edie wise in the ways of powerful men and the power of sexuality, is coming. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. It's a few months after the trip to France, a little more than a year after Edie first arrives in New York, but her 15 minutes of fame is already running out. Andy's moving on to a new medium. The factory's churning out a new look. He's signed a band, the Velvet Underground. Their rock is offbeat and experimental. Their lyrics are dark. 
and the lead singer, a severe Germanic blonde, is Andy's new obsession. She's nothing like Edie. She has a different look, a different style. Edie's all fizz and fun. Her replacement is cold and still. But if Andy's finished with Edie, maybe Edie's finished with Andy too. His films leave her feeling exposed. She says she's turning into someone else's caricature of herself. One film's called Poor Little Rich Girl. Another features her in a bra and pants kissing a half-naked man while a voice off-screen heckles and insults her. Her latest is Lupe. It's supposed to be about the suicide of a troubled starlet. The last days of a star of Hollywood's golden age. But it's not. Not really. It never is with Edie. Not when Andy's directing. He turns on the camera and films Edie being Edie. The actor is the character. She sat at a table, a plate of food in front of her. But she doesn't eat. She drinks, dances, swallows some drugs. The camera picks out her clavicle, distinct above the low arch of her dress. Her legs are bruised. Her movements lag a little behind. Her synapses seem sluggish. Her eyes are dull. It ends with Edie vomiting down the toilet, her limp body curled around the bowl and onto the floor. A few months before, Andy and Edie make a rare appearance on a talk show. Andy strolls on set, but refuses to talk, letting Edie deal with the host's questions. At one point, the host tries to cajole Andy into speaking. Edie intervenes with a giggle, but a hint of steel. She looks straight at Andy. She says, I'm the one who has to make a fool of myself, while Andy can just sit there quietly. Snow's falling in Greenwich Village. It's late, but lights glow out of a basement bar. As the door swings open, the music from the jukebox spills out into the cold air. On the walls are fading pictures of famous nights. The crowd is bookish. Poets, writers, singers and thinkers. It's a different scene from the factory, less extravagant, less showy. The beat generation easing into middle age. And there in a cosy corner is Edie talking to Bob Dylan. Bob has none of Andy's eccentricities. He wears a dark jacket, dark glasses, and a mop of dark, real hair. He's into pop rather than pills. A quiet man. But the revolution he's leading isn't. Earlier that year, he plugs in an amplifier for the first time. It beefs up his sounds and splits his fans. Bob's decision to go electric is a controversy that sweeps across the country. Edie pouts and preens. Sometimes she's coy. Sometimes she explodes into peals of laughter. As the bar slowly empties, as their empty glasses stack up, as the ashtray overflows, Bob leans over. He says two words. Let's split. And they do. Edie leaves the bar with Bob. She walks out into the snow, leaving Andy in the factory behind. For good. Edie and Bob's tracks are hard to follow. What passes between them is unclear. There might be traces of Edie in Bob's lyrics. Her fog, her amphetamine, and her pearls. 
he sings of an unnamed woman in one song. In another, Bob sings, Ain't it hard when you discover that he really wasn't where it's at after he took from you everything he could steal? But for Edie, it wasn't hard. It was life. A stolen childhood, an exploited beauty, and a void that no relationship or drug could ever fill. Edie comes further off the rails. She drifts out of Dylan's circle, out of the spotlight, back west to California, and back into rehab. It's a few years later, and Edie's back in front of the cameras. But she's not the star. Not anymore. They're filming an American family, a new kind of TV show. There's no script, no actors, no plot. Just cameras following a wealthy family and their kids. They've organised a fashion show in a grand museum. Models strut down the runway. Works of art fill the walls. The best of Santa Barbara there to see and be seen. And there, in the third row, is Edie. Her hair's long now, the bob's gone, it's grown out, straight and dark. Edie's just another face in the crowd, another pretty girl in a well-to-do town. She watches the fashion show play out, the cameras focus. The family trading their personality for celebrity. Edie watches on as they strike the same deal she once did. And after the show, she wanders backstage. She congratulates the models on their beauty, their poise, their elegance. As she's leaving, she pauses for a moment. She catches sight of herself in one of the mirrors. She sees an older, more ordinary Edie staring back, a washed-up copy of the girl who had the world in her hands, a black hole where a star once was. At an after-party, she drinks vodka and smokes furiously. She drapes herself over men she's just met and argues with women who know her past. It's the relapse that always follows the rehab. She wobbles as she walks out, staggering into a waiting car. She heads home, washes down some prescription pills and falls asleep fast and hard. Her lungs rattle and rasp, her breathing heavy. Then, it stops. Her body gives out, too thin and weak to take any more. Twenty-eight years of too much and too little take their toll. And Edie's gone. It ripples through the press. The New York Times took a short story of her death onto page 45. Readers recall a name they haven't heard in a while and a face they could never forget. For others, the news arrives quicker. It sweeps through our old circles. At the factory, Andy's told. He pauses for a second and carries on work. One of Bob's friends phones another. He starts the conversation with one sentence. Well, the lady's dead. But Edie's image lives on, burned onto celluloid, sketched out in a song lyric, and in a thousand reality shows, hundreds of gossip columns. Because Edie's the original it girl, 
the first to be famous for fame's own sake, Edie's act doesn't end when the reels stop rolling. That's what makes her, but it's what breaks her too. If you've been affected by any of the issues we spoke about in this podcast or are worried about someone you love, please go to crowdnetwork.co.uk forward slash helplines to find a list of people you can go to for help. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For a search, we read from the archives of Vanity Fair, The New York Times, and The Independent. We watched movies from Andy Warhol's Factory Period and read Edie, an American biography by Gene Stein. The music we used is from our partner's BMG production music. If you'd like to listen to another podcast, try our other show, Death of a Rockstar, and look for our episode about Jeff Buckley. Thanks for listening. Network, a place where you belong. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Hold up. 